It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Spurs in full cry here. Welcome, listeners, to The Extra Inch. My name's Wendy, and I'm about to be joined by our friend and sports psychologist, Alex Stoyle. But before I speak to Alex, I wanted to remind you that during March, we are partnered with Pleaties. We're very happy to be partnered with Pleaties. They are a clothing brand, casual wear for Spurs fans. Their designs are inspired by the highs and lows of being proper coys. I love their designs. I think they're really cool really unusual unique you don't get spurs gear like this go check them out pleatees.com the name is a david pleat reference so it is spelt p-l-e-a-t-e-e-s.com they've created a discount code especially for the extra inch listeners it is extra 20 and that will get you 20 percent off give them a follow on twitter as well at pleatees again it's p-l-e-a-t-e-e-s say hi Tell them that you're a listener of The Extra Inch. I'm sure they'll be very glad to have you on board. And I'm very happy to welcome back friend of the podcast and sports psychologist, Alex Stoyle. Alex, how are you? I'm good, thank you, Wendy. How are you? Very well. It's really nice to see you. It's been a while and we always sort of collect a bunch of questions um, in the interim periods because people are so fascinated about sports psychology and obviously you have um, a lot of expertise. In fact, if people haven't heard you speak before, perhaps you could remind them of your um, your credentials yeah, so I'm I'm currently a, a trainee sports psychologist. So I have uh, I'm currently doing a doctorate at the University of Portsmouth. Um, my area of kind of specialty or area of research is around uh, sort of choking under pressure or, or bottling it or spursiness, depending on how you want to want to label it. Um, yeah, and that's that's as part of a kind of a, a longer process of becoming a sort of fully fully signed up and qualified sports psychologist. Um, and then I am also a Spurs season ticket holder, um, so I am uh, yeah qu- qualified, I guess, on both sides to to sort of talk Absolutely. about sports and, psychology. And works in professional sport as well. Yes, yes. So uh, yeah, I have um, and work with uh, yeah across a number of a number of different sports, a number of different sort of levels. Um, yeah, both teams and individual athletes as well. I think it's uh, important to to say. Yeah, exactly. And and I. I really like that. I, it's one of the most kind of fun and fascinating bits of my sport is kind of working, you know, one minute you're working with a, a swimming team and then you're working with an individual golfer and then you're working with a rugby club and then you're working with a yeah, you know, rowing or whatever. You know, so it's, it's really fun to kind of bounce around from from different types of sports, team sports, individual sports, etc. So, yeah, it's really fun. Amazing. It must keep you on your toes, I'm sure. So um, we've got loads to get through. Uh, I'd like to start off by talking about uh, uncertainty and um, and Chelsea's current situation, I think, is a, a really sensible place to start. So what they're going through at the moment with the the change in ownership and the uncertainty, uncertainty around the ownership of the club, how much money they might or might not be able to spend in the summer, uh, whether they might be able to offer contracts to players, the, any, any revenue can't be taken etc how might that impact on the sort of day-to-day um i guess 
I was going to say the performance of players on the pitch, but it's more than that. It's it's the sort of day to day training. It's everything to do with being a player at a club, going under that kind of um, stress and scrutiny and uncertainty. Yeah, and and I think uncertainty is is a it could be quite an important factor in that. Like I, there there is definitely some sort of um, logic to why that might impact someone's mindset, which might in turn impact their performance. Um, I think you know, when I've when I've been on before, I've I've spoken a bit about control, and control is mm. is really kind of the most to to me is kind of the most fundamental concept, sort of underpinning sports psychology. Like focus on the things you can control, or at least yeah. that you can kind of influence. Um, and when you have large amounts of uncertainty that are about things that are in this case totally beyond your control, that can be quite disconcerting, right? And and so I guess if I was Chelsea's sports psychologist and was actually trying to help them um rather than a sort of trying to bring them down from within uh <laughs> then i would i would be kind of encouraging the players to focus on the things that they can still control and, and to sort of you know distance themselves from any of those kind of what if scenarios and the, the uncertainty that that comes through there um but on the other hand, I think there's there's also kind of other factors that come as a sort of direct result of some of that uncertainty. So, you know, things like, you know, the 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 imposition of the kind of the travel costs and, and that being capped. Um, I mean, it's capped at an amount that to most people feels absolutely or certainly to me feels kind of ludicrous. The idea that you can't travel, a, you know, transport a, a, a team of, you know, however many players and however many sports staff. Um yeah, for less than whatever it is, 50 grand or something is, is kind of insane. But um, but even things like that. Right. I mean, if you you know, I talk a lot with um, with sports people of kind of all levels, but particularly kind of younger ones who are still sort of, you know, in their late teens and are kind of maybe coming up on a kind of you know the crucial part of their career. I talk a lot about pre you know pre competition routines or pre performance routines and how important that can be for trying to modulate your own sort of level of kind of excitement or anxiety so that you you know, you find the sort of optimal level that's right for you right and and that can be really different from one person to another so the, the example I kind of often call on in that situation is like uh, I have a little slide when I'm doing workshops and it's got a photo of Michael Phelps before an Olympic final and he looks like he's about to rip someone's head off he's like grimacing and, and growling and frowning and then a photo of Usain Bolt and Usain Bolt is dancing behind the blocks. He's high-fiving the, the, the kid who's kind of going to take his clothes off, uh, you know, whatever. He's shouting at the crowd, rallying them up, whatever. So, you know, two totally different outward kind of personas, two totally different ways to prepare. And yet these are two of the, you know, the best who've ever done it. You know, they're the best in their their respective sports, you know, uh, uh, yeah, kind of of all time. So it can work very differently for each person. But if you then start messing with that and that pre-performance routine can start it's not necessarily just minutes or even hours before the race right it can start long before that and so if all of a sudden you've got players who are used to flying in lovely private jets with you know from here to there and you know even flying sort of just around the country right it's not even the european matches they're flying to the midlands you know on a private jet so all of a sudden like when that changes and they might have to be like on a bus or even if they're just flying you know, first class but on a, on a regular airplane <laughs> slumming it um you know that, but that will still have an impact right because they will have come to build their routines around certain aspects of that and that those repercussions can just start to kind of you know cause little ripples right of like uh, oh wait hang on, i didn't get to do the thing that i normally do or my my schedule's a little bit knocked off because normally we would have arrived by 7 p.m. so that we could get to the team hotel by here and eat by then and blah 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 you know and instead you've you know, got to do things slightly differently so I think there are some slightly more kind of logistical things as well which would then have that psychological impact but ultimately that that uncertainty is is something that could could certainly creep in right and and I think um I think the you know the the person who who asked this question Adam uh, was was kind of saying like that it was you know maybe the financial concerns aren't as front of mind as they might be for well in the news today right and yesterday was the P&O um story that P&O ferries and cruise lines have just fired a whole bunch of people and a bunch of them just like basically mutinied and refused to get off the boats um you know so for there's probably a bit of a difference in terms of what the P&O personnel were earning compared to professional footballers at Chelsea but 
still, you know, like no one wants to lose their job. No one wants to sort of not have a purpose, not have a thing to do tomorrow. Um, and that's that's going to impact anyone. And and I guess even to some extent, you know, like there is a huge there's going to be a huge difference between like your really, really top end, uh, top end earners at Chelsea compared to someone, you know, the kid who's just about to break through, who's kind of hasn't yet had a contract extension, et cetera. Like they and, you know, I can easily imagine that for professional footballers, there's a little bit of a kind of at the beginning, maybe people living beyond their means as well of kind of like wanting to keep up. Right. They they turn up to training and everyone else has got a flash new Ferrari or whatever. And so they want to turn up with that. And maybe actually they're not in a position quite yet where that's a sensible decision. So for some of those, they may genuinely be, you know, and if you're being kind of a bit cynical or even sort of mean hearted, you kind of go, oh, well, nice problems to have when you, you can't afford your Ferrari but you know still like people will be living on an expectation of making a certain amount of money that's how almost everyone works right and and you know conceivably some of them will be living pretty close to to not making ends meet as astonishing as that might sound but you know for them this would would also carry that financial concern um that being said I, I one of the things that really struck me with this with this question was that there's also the flip side of this question is is a different question that, that I know kind of does the rounds. I, I think it's maybe been mentioned on the pod before and I've definitely seen it on Spurs Twitter and all the rest of it is like is is almost the opposite. Right. So this question is about like, does uncertainty cause or could it cause worse performances? And then there are questions around, oh, like if a player signs a new contract, are they going to go off the boil? Are they going to become complacent and switch off and not be as good? And so to me, there's something quite interesting in that, that like people essentially kind of looking to almost pin bad performances on on something like a a, a root cause, whether that's too much security or too little, um, too much uh, uncertainty or not enough. Um, And so there's something kind of interesting in that. And um, I think we'll probably come on and talk a little bit, hopefully, about some sort of kind of cognitive and psychological biases that that humans uh sort of are prone to uh, and particularly ones that are kind of uh particularly sort of relevant for sports fans spurs fans and and anyone who likes any sport right um but yeah confirmation bias is a is a very strong one right and so if you're someone who's kind of got a little bit of a sort of uh a, a pet theory around oh yeah players always go off the boil when they sign a new contract you'll be looking for the data, you know, not, not actively, not consciously, right. But this is just what our brain does. It will process the information that agrees with that theory more strongly. It will give it greater weight than the evidence against. And so it's sort of interesting to me that there's this, this kind of little question here and, and there's sort of two almost opposing questions, but coming at the same sort of topic. Of course, there's also, if you are at extreme of one end of the spectrum and at the extreme of another, I guess if someone gave maybe if someone gave out a 50 year contract, then, yeah, maybe you'd go off the boil because you know that is a very, very long contract. But um, arguably, yeah, so arguably if it's really, really one end or the other, you, you know, basically whenever you're you're dealing with extremes along a spectrum, there are probably likely to be some repercussions. But, um, yeah, I, I think it's just kind of a, a fun, fun little thought exercise to kind of think about, like, well, how, why are people coming up with these two? opposing theories to explain bad performances so you mentioned adam uh, as adam pickering thank you adam it was a really really useful question and i think um i mean it, it encapsulates a lot of issues that that go on in football uncertainty there's there's so much uncertainty at clubs all the time particularly with managerial changes you know managerial changes happen so frequently nowadays compared to how they used to back in the day and at Spurs, we're experiencing sort of self-made uncertainty because of the way that Antonio Conte um, frames things sometimes in, in post-match press conferences. And obviously he does that for a reason. You know, he, he he's trying to le- leverage the situation to his advantage. But is there a possibility that that could have a detrimental effect on, on team performance? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think... I think for all the same reasons that that it could for for the Chelsea players, like yeah, and I, I guess the the key difference really is potentially what what's going on behind the scenes, right? And I, I think that's true for you know whenever I've come on and we've spoken about whoever the the current manager is, um, you know we don't know what's going on behind closed doors. So 
he may be sitting down all the players and saying, listen, guys, I'm <clears throat> I'm really here for the long haul. I really trust you guys. But, you know, we all know Daniel Levy maybe isn't, you know, the most eager to kind of go out and splash the cash. So, you know, I'm, I've got to say this to get him to change his ways or whatever, you know, like, and maybe the players are fully on board with that. They fully understand it and they therefore know not to, you know, not to really believe what he says in the interviews. If that's not what's happening, I think that could be quite confusing for for those players and would lead to a bit of a sense of uncertainty that you know mm-hmm. the idea that like he goes from this is the worst bunch of players and they're terrible and there's a huge gulf between the quality here and the quality that I expect and then the next week you know or the next game we win and he's like this is the greatest group of players I've ever worked with I love them all they're like my sons yeah and like that the, the extremity in those kind of um statements is is likely to be a little bit confusing um that being said it is also and i think this is a point that that i've kind of mentioned before when we were sort of referencing Mourinho is that in in Mourinho's peak he did something sort of similar which is at least it sort of seems like he's he's taking the heat off the players to some extent and you you could make that case right is Mm -hmm. that after a loss he comes out and says these extravagant things he overreacts he you know he's basically sort of ripping his clothes off and tearing out his hair telling the world how you know this was the worst thing in the world and that maybe helps draw attention away from uh well was it this player's fault or you know was so and so just not quite up to scratch today or was the team not quite up to scratch collectively it kind of maybe deflects a bit of the attention away from from them and brings it onto himself so you could argue that in that sense it's it's helpful but it would also yeah like i said i i think i would hope that behind the scenes he is expressing something quite different to the players if he is expressing something similar to them behind the behind the scenes that's that's probably likely to be yeah pretty pretty confusing and and lead to a bit of a yeah a sense of like well how long is this guy going to be here is he going to be here end of the month end of the season is he going to be here for three years so that that's that's probably going to weigh on some players Mm. and despite his um, methods of deflection there are some players that come under intense scrutiny both online and and in the ground and 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 those sort of confirmation biases really come into their own in, in the stadium i guess when um when fans are sort of seeing what they want to see and then reflecting potential negativity which can i guess infect those around them um yeah and you've experienced this yourself recently yeah for sure and and i think you know this is uh, I, I just a couple of days ago, I, li- I listened to the episode quite recently with Greg Jenner and, and talking to the, the sort of data scientist, which was an outstanding episode. So if, if anyone's listening to this one and hasn't listened to that, it's, it's really, really good. Um, but the and there it sort of talks about the kind of the sort of online culture of of, of abusing footballers. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's interesting because like the the tone with which certain people communicate is is kind of contagious right it is infectious we are social creatures that's kind of how we're 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 built how we're designed um and it takes it it runs kind of counter to our sort of intuition to not want to fit in with a crowd with a group right especially a group with whom we are kind of already bonded right Mm. so there's there's a lot of social social psych theories around sort of in groups and out groups right so once you are all spurs fans and you kind of have that bit of solidarity and then you put yourself in in the situation where we are all spurs fans together at spurs stadium watching spurs play that's going to be even more sort of exacerbated right we're going to all kind of want to want to fit in so if you then have some people starting to talk negatively, and uh, as you mentioned, I had this happen. I was at the the Wolves game, and there were some guys sat behind me, uh, well, men and women who were sat behind me, um, and there was about a group of ten of them, and they were sat across the two rows uh, just behind, not their usual seats. Um, never encountered them before, and from the very first whistle, they were just, oh, that was terrible. Oh, that was crap. What's he doing that for? Oh, come on. Can't he see he's, you know, so-and-so is free on that side. And it was just relentless. And it wasn't just one of them. It, it it was clearly how they all communicate about football and about Spurs 
like this was a well-worn pattern of behavior of like we just will pick this apart from from the from minute one and you know it was a game we went on to lose it was quite disappointing in a lot of ways and they were booing they were far from the only people who were booing by the end um but they were it, it was it was something to behold uh to to listen to them be so relentlessly negative from the beginning um and it certainly sort of what i mean i guess one of my questions is i don't what are they getting out of this like why why are they doing this to themselves like take up knitting or something you know like, but just why are you doing this to yourself because i can't imagine that they were really deriving very much satisfaction from what they were watching they certainly weren't expressing that but i think it was an interesting little sort of case study essentially of of that group's dynamic right i think even if we'd gone on to win that game with a bit of a sort of a second half revival they would have been they would have found it very hard to kind of change that narrative that's established within their group i think they still would have been quite negative looking to identify all of the little errors all the rest of it because that's just how they were operating right and it's quite hard to sort of turn that around you know it's the sort of the turning around the tanker kind of analogy those patterns are, are, are really established so i i think and and i guess what's interesting is like for those people sat around them because they were talking very loudly and because they were across two rows you know they they were talking to each other loudly so that they could hear themselves and that was amplified across uh, you know, the the group around more broadly was what effect that had on other people right mm. and i genuinely believe that our little section of the stadium was quieter was was less willing to sort of cheer and clap and sing and we're like it's not necessarily the the loudest part of the stadium anyway like but it's it's normally you can rely on it being a little bit kind of lively and it wasn't that day and it's hard to know what cause and effect is here right Mm -hmm. because like Mm -hmm. we weren't playing well but and so you know there was a little bit there was less to be excited about there were lots of kind of just losing 50-50s and frustrating moments and all the rest of it and the game was sort of crying out for the sort of proverbial grab it by the scruff of the neck type moment that never really came but still it kind of seemed like these this this attitude was slightly sort of contagious and and certainly that no one wanted to be the one who started a a chant or, or who just sort of like cheered by themselves or clapped really loudly or something because there was this clear sense that there was this quite big group of people who didn't subscribe to that that kind of concept um and i think that can then happen more broadly right and i think social media is is very bad for this like in in terms of you know amplifying extreme opinions potentially on both ends of the spectrum Mm -hmm. but you know and sort of deadening those in the middle who just have a sort of a bit more of a kind of like yeah we lost but it wasn't the end of the world kind of viewpoint that that doesn't get likes um but also just that you know i think even within a stadium once you start having that atmosphere once you have some people start booing it just puts that idea in your head oh well they're booing they must be booing for a reason and particularly in that kind of instance where with with booing or with very vocal negative sort of comments like the only or certainly for for booing the the sort of the counterpoint to that often is just silence right which which isn't a very strong endorsement necessarily right but but it's it would be quite adversarial if like a group of people started booing and you and the other lot kind of immediately started you know come on you spurs or whatever right as a like then you've almost got sort of rival factions within a group and like i said with social creatures that's that kind of runs counter to what we are intuitively want to do so yeah it's just a sort of an interesting experience of kind of seeing some of this sort of like the the sort of social dynamics kind of at play within a football stadium within football supporting group um as it sort of like played out live um and i, I it definitely affected me I, I i really really did not enjoy that game and i it was i mean it was a hard game to enjoy but it was a really negative experience for me to, to sort of sit there and have them behind me the whole time just criticizing i mean that's basically the definition of toxic behavior isn't it it's it's, it's allowing your own negative opinions to ruin someone else's day yeah uh, and perhaps not deliberately yeah i'm sure these yeah. people were probably just going about their fandom in the way they always do and they don't realize that they're they're, they're doing that and no i'm not going to pretend that i'm above that because i mean firstly our podcasts 
fairly regularly receives criticism for being relentlessly positive, which I don't <laughs> think is is quite true. But you know, certainly there's a, a group of fans that definitely think we're overly positive about Spurs, and certainly that I am in particular. Um, but when when um, Jose Mourinho is our manager, I I absolutely felt myself getting dragged into a in a negative spiral. I mean, I'd, I'd I really tried to give him a chance, and once I'd realised. I can't see this going anywhere good. It was like every little thing that went wrong was absolutely his fault and he was the only one to blame and the and and so I was I was falling foul of this myself and I I recognize it now and it must have been quite annoying to listen to for people when they were listening to our podcast during that period. And and uh, I'm sure there were many other people that felt the same way because he does have that kind of dementor effect of sucking the the, the sucking the goodness <laughs> out of the situation he makes it all about him and when it's all about him and it's not going well it's not much fun um but yeah i mean i absolutely get it i just don't think now is the now is doesn't feel like the right time to be like that i mean we're still in with a chance of top four certainly at the time that match was going on uh we weren't in a bad position at all perhaps it was the fact that it followed the southampton match where we'd been taken apart quite dramatically by uh a team who will probably finish in the mid table. Um, perhaps that's got a lot to do with it, but yeah, yeah, it's, it doesn't help what's happening on the pitch, does it? No. And, and I think, you know, coming back to, well, so I, I think often, well, so sort of talk, talking about sort of like the way, the way that our brains are kind of wired, like we, we do tend to overemphasize sort of negative experiences or incidents over positive ones. Right. And, and from a, from a sort of an evolutionary perspective, that kind of makes sense, right? Like if you you're the sort of caveman or cavewoman wandering through the forest, right? And there's a patch of forest that's got some like decent berries, and there's a patch of forest that's got a tiger living in it. Like your brain is much better off paying attention to which is the bit of the forest with the tiger in, right? Like you can survive without berries for a little bit, you know, for a day or two. You can't survive if you get eaten by the the tiger. So our brains are kind of hardwired around that. Um, there's also just a bit of a sort of, you know, we, we have developed emotional sort of uh, coping me- mechanisms, I guess, to sort of try and protect ourselves. And if from the first minute you go, Spurs are rubbish, Spurs are going to lose this. Look how bad they're playing. Oh, they can't, you know, that was dreadful. Then if we go on to lose, which in that case we did, you at least have a little bit of a told you so type moment. Whereas if you're like, no, 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 I've actually got a good feeling about this. There's kind of nowhere but down from that, right? Like if 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 you win, it's like, oh cool, but that's all I was expecting. And if you don't, then on you know, on a personal level, there will be potentially more disappointment, but also conceivably a little bit if you have told people about it, mm-hmm. you feel embarrassed because they turn around and go, Yeah, you thought you were gonna win that against Wolves, but you didn't. And you know, so that that then starts to come into play. So that some of these are understandable, right? As as mechanisms for doing that. Um and and similarly I think there's kind of you know, when we're talking about confirmation bias, there's there's also other elements to this as well, right? Which is, you know, these, you know, particularly, I think, or increasingly sports journalism and football journalism, I guess, uh, even more so, um, love to generate narratives, right? Narratives sell, sell papers, get clicks, get viewers, because you can then, oh, maybe, you know, any time that something fits the narrative, you have you already have a starting point anytime something slightly falls outside of that that's a talking point but these narratives tend to be very reductionist right in in terms of what you're actually dealing with and they often overlook just sort of reasonably basic fundamental points about how a football season is going to go right like there's a reason why and you know can't believe i'm bringing them up but you know Arsenal's Invincibles team is exceptional because they're the only team who's gone an entire Premier League season without losing, right? So if Spurs lose a match, one match, two matches, that is not really news, right? That's that's just how a season goes for every football team pretty much forever, right? Like, But that's not a story. So what you have to do is you have to say, well, does, does that loss fit a narrative or counter a narrative and then you you say to you know 
Roy Keane, oh, I think this fits the narrative. And he goes, no, it doesn't fit the narrative and is paid to be grumpy. And, and then Micah jumps in and goes, no, I think it does or whatever. You know, and like then you've got your little sparring and that's how you fill the half an hour between one match and the next. But those narratives can be incredibly powerful because they give you the sort of the framework into which your confirmation bias can then easily slot right so if you are given a narrative that spurs are spursy right that that we throw things away at the you know at crucial moments then you are looking for instances of that and they will only confirm that and you're more likely to then overlook the the instances like our run to the champions league final right where we had two successive rounds where we pulled off like the unspursiest results ever, right? Against City and Ajax. Those those were the absolute antithesis of spursiness, like pulling off unbelievable results against all odds by showing some real resilience and, and fight back. Um, and yet that's that's never really touched upon, right? Like that's, that, that doesn't fit the narrative. So in the moment, maybe it's like, oh, is this the new dawn for Tottenham? Is Pochettino going to do it? But all that's doing is really hyping up a sense of expectation so that if we don't meet that narrative, then we go, ah, no, it was all for nothing. They are still spursy. So it's just really interesting that that to me that feels like a, a, a sort of a premise within and it's just a sort of an accepted way that, that sports journalism is is kind of conducted. Um that allows people to to then very neatly fit their own confirmation biases in and around that. And certainly that you can then find a sports journalist somewhere who will agree with your particular bias mm-hmm. and, and back you up on it. Right. And so, you know, whether you believe that Daniel Levy is the worst manager in, in the, you know, in football history, you can go out and find, you know, some journalists and hundreds of Twitter accounts that support you. And then you're in your own little echo chamber and you found your in group who believe you and subscribe to the same ideas and you just sort of bounce off each other feeling more and more negative towards towards Daniel Levy or maybe it's not Daniel Levy it's Harry Winks or maybe it's not Harry Winks it's Deli Alley or maybe it's not Deli Alley it's whoever 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 um and yeah then you're just you're you're caught in this sort of like you're not only confirming your own biases but you're having them confirmed for you by others It's it's really fascinating, and um, and you've 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 managed a nice segue by talking about sports journalism because we've got a question from Stuart about media training, which I think fits in quite nicely here. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one of a kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. So Stuart says, how do you think professional footballers... Sorry, how do you think professional football players feel about media training? Watching interviews with players, it can often feel unnatural as players seem to have been trained to give standardised answers to questions. Do you think the players would benefit from being being trusted more by football clubs to vocalise their own answers in response to questions from the football media? Yeah, this was a a really interesting question. Um, And to be honest, I'd never really thought about it from this from this angle. so actually, so my wife is also a sports psychologist. So I, I actually spoke to her about this as well. So she she's a, a Spurs fan as well. And we were like, well, what what do you think? And and her take was very similar to mine, which is that 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 probably probably the answer is actually I suspect most of them are really glad to have it. That that actually you know increasingly you know and especially with social media, right? Saying even the slightest little thing wrong 
mm. can lead to such a, you know a backlash such a sort of you know pile on whatever that having been trained knowing what the stock answers are gives you that fallback to to just sort of like no uh, yeah i'll just sort of say like yeah the lads did great we're on you know we're just thinking about the next game one game at a time gaffer told us you know that that you know whatever and you just kind of batted away with some some sort of tedious well rehearsed answers but i suspect that's probably really um yeah really sort of appreciated i guess by the by the football players right and i think it's sort of worth bearing in mind that you know like it's always worth bearing in mind that footballers are humans um <laughs> at the end of the day and that you know for vast vast swathes of the population talking in public is like one of the most stressful things to do right even if that is just talking in front of like a handful of colleagues like that can be overwhelming to a good number of people and actually there is a there is a psychology test right so one of the ways that they want if you want to authentically induce stress in an individual so that you can either test their stress levels or test what they do under stress and it's called the tria tria stress test and it involves talking to a group of people so what they do is they set you up in a room uh, and apologies to any psychology researchers who are hoping to call on spurs fans because i'm about to give the game away but what they will do is they'll say like okay cool we're going to call you over and then we'll give you like a minute to think of a topic and then you walk in and they say you have to talk unbroken for a minute and they've got people there in white coats and they've got a camera set up and all the rest of it so that it feels very formal feels very official um, and they ask you just to talk without stopping for a minute on a chosen subject and the panel are not meant to respond at all they're meant to sit there very stony faced if you run out of time or run out of things to say they will just go you still have 30 seconds please continue talking oh wow yeah and, and that is a way of inducing stress and it is such a well-known uh, and universal experience that that would cause stress that it's used frequently for generate you know across all sort of subsets of psychology so the idea that you sort of call in a footballer who's also you know minutes after full time right potentially so they're sort of like partly out of breath they they want to go and just warm down refuel put you know put some clothes on just get home right and you kind of call them over and you go what did you think about that it's i suspect that having something that's just totally inoffensive is is quite a sort of quite a relief at that point and i guess the other sort of part of that is is conversely like i think there's you know there are players who are kind of known to be a bit more quirky or authentic in their interviews they sort of if they feel confident doing that they can so i think i think there's also a bit of a sort of counterfactual there around like if you really want to if you really want to break away from the 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 sort of press training you you can and actually that you know there are some examples of people who've done that to really quite extreme event uh, extents and haven't necessarily been sort of punished that hard right so it's, it's not like there's a, a real sort of crackdown from a club that like oh you said this you said that right so you know danny rose came out and gave that interview it wasn't like the club turned around and and like terminated his contract right they were like okay well you're still our player he didn't play very much after that, but that was also partly for whatever, you know, changes as manager, Mourinho, et cetera, et cetera, right? There's a number of different reasons there. You guys have spoken previously about Lucas Moura and his political beliefs, right? It's not like the club has cracked down on him for that, which is, in my opinion, a genuine shame and bordering on a disgrace that, like, that they haven't because he is a very vocal supporter of some things that i don't think he should be supporting that the club say they stand against right um gattuso was touted as our manager despite everything he has said and done and whatever is on record saying so people can go off script and it's not like they are then cast into the wilderness right so so there is you know there is a, a sense there, I guess, that actually, to be honest, if if you are a player and you really want to speak your mind, you you probably can. Um, and actually, you're probably going to get away with it. Um, and therefore, I think that the, the frequency with which you see people just players just spouting. Yeah. The sort of same slightly 
tedious responses is probably just a sign that you know they are not barristers they're not politicians they're paid to play football and the post-match interview is probably the thing they dread most about their job it is really weird how um the sort of post-match interview has become its own little industry isn't it how you know the, the players trotted out and they say the same old things told you know talk to them by specialists in in pr i suspect uh, and then the the pundits analyze the same old things the players have said week after week in a really un unexciting way and we know what's going to come we know we know exactly what they're going to say every time pretty much there's nothing new and yet it continues it's it's quite bizarre when you sort of stand back and and reflect on that but uh in english yeah. football uh <laughs> It takes a while to move forward, I suppose. So, so that's probably that's probably that's probably why we still continue with this little game of of, of cat and mouse, um, occasionally trying to catch someone out. I guess I, I do remember last season James Madison gave an interview which was very off script and. He got lots of plaudits for it. I think he's quite a questionable character, Madison, and he said some things that are less impressive. But on one occasion, I remember watching him thinking, "Wow, yeah, that was you know that was that was brave, that was authentic. That felt mm. like he, the barriers were down. He was just being himself and he was being honest. And if I were a Leicester fan, I'd have loved to have seen it and I'd have been quite open to it. And yeah, he he got he 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 got a lot of um, positive comments. But there you go. I've just said I think he's a questionable character, so it works both ways, right? Um, yeah, no, I, course, I think you're yeah. right. I think the comfort blanket is 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 probably quite helpful. Yeah, and and obviously it then sort of becomes a bit of a sort of self fulfilling prophecy or or whatever because once you've got the majority of players relying on these pretty standard answers, the one player who does break from that stands out even more, right? So we'll come in for even more, yeah, press attention, even more attention online, all the rest of it, right? Because everyone else is just saying the same trite stuff about yeah onto the next game whatever whatever so you stand out even more and so as as that kind of continues right like you go from 75 percent of players don't want to speak out to 80 percent to 85 to 90 to 95 percent mm. right now you're at 99 percent of players never say anything other than just the same boring answer but that's because you just you're going to be even kind of weirder quite unquote even more exceptional even more press worthy if you do come out and go I'm tearing up the script and here's how I really feel. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know if you um, heard about what happened with Marcus Rashford this week. So Marcus Rashford, obviously someone who has been universally loved by pretty much all football fans because he's done so many good things and he's spoken out really eloquently and um, and strongly against, I mean, in favour of young people, essentially. I mean, and who can argue with that? It seems like you know that is a, that is a good thing, and he's been uh, lauded for it correctly. And he had an altercation with some fans outside a match. Post match, he got some criticism, um, a barrage of criticism, and he said to someone, "Why don't you come here and say it to my face?" Or, or something along those lines. Maybe it was a kind of, "I bet you wouldn't come here and say it to my face," rather than mm-hmm. being directly confrontational. Um, and he got loads of criticism from United fans. Um, you know, even the most well-loved players who has seen to sort of be be universally net good can it can change in an instant for them. So no wonder they keep their thoughts to themselves. I mean, look at Delhi. Basically, he used to have fun on social media. He used to be sort of playful, and the amount of times I've seen people say needs to stick to football and stop playing Fortnite. And I'm just like, seriously? Seriously? Mm. Like, he's just allowing a bit of his character and some of his hobbies to come through in his social media presence, and he's getting criticised for that. Um, but then he he made that inappropriate joke, right? And True. You know, so, so, yes, you're completely right, like, which was undeniably inappropriate. I think probably was, was not intended to be offensive, you know, but nonetheless it, it was what it was but you know that's that's then the risk you take right you, mm-hmm. you show a bit more authenticity you just run the risk that you just say the wrong thing you do the wrong thing and then there's a pylon right mm. whether that's justified or not right and, and and in that case i think you know the outrage was probably you know more justified certainly than than it is against Marcus Rashford. I mean, it's also astonishing. I mean, Marcus Rashford has has come through the Man United Academy. Yeah. Like he is a childhood fan of the club and all the rest of it. Like he he couldn't be more 
more Man United if he yeah. tried, and yeah. is also a stand-up character. So the idea that you know, you know but again, we're, we're just back to this kind of concept that, yeah, footballers are human, but we we are not very good at remembering that as a general rule, mm. <laughs> and so we expect them to be perfectly well behaved at all times. Mm. Um, so, so I've got a, a, a very detailed question here, and uh, you you might have to really explain this in layman's terms. So this is from Solipsistic Spurs, who says. I would be curious to hear Alex's thoughts on the intersection of psychopathology and performance. For example, how often when working with a performance client does psychopathology appear? Many interventions I practice with clients in forensic psychology also seem to be used in performance consultation, at least in my limited understanding of the field. Very excited to hear your response. Yeah, a, a very cool question. Um, and one, I guess, more for the uh, maybe for the sort of psychology geeks who may be listening. Um, yeah, I mean, so I guess it can and does happen for sure that that you're sort of talking to someone. It, it depends a little bit what exactly you kind of mean by psychopathology. Um, certainly, I guess the first first thing to say is that, you know, if so I have a certain certain kind of point at which my competence as a sports psychologist sort of ceases. So if someone in the course of the sessions working with me, it becomes very clear that there is, you know, a, a diagnosable mental illness, whether that be sort of severe depression, whether it's something more like sort of um, bipolar or whether it's kind of eating disorders, anything along those lines, it, it basically moves beyond my realm of being able to help there are specific ways and you need to be trained in those so at that point i would normally look to refer them on to someone who knows more now it's possible that i may continue working with them and i would then become part of a team so i may then be kind of collaborate collaborating with that normally that would then be a a clinical psychologist or potentially a, a counseling psychologist um and so i may sort of continue to work with them as a way of sort of giving the sort of sporting insight particularly if the if the other psychologist doesn't come from a sporting background maybe doesn't necessarily understand what sport means to to a sort of a uh, competitive um sports person um but in in general i mean that's that's extremely rare that 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 happens um if there are sort of other elements of that and i guess this is you know where where it kind of depends what you what you mean exactly by psychopathology but you know there are certainly sort of i guess kind of character traits and characteristics that that i see come up a lot um in in people that i'm talking to um that can be helpful or unhelpful so you know or that maybe again as we're sort of talking about earlier with spectrums you know people who are very much at one end of a spectrum at an extreme it it generally you know, being at an extreme is generally, you know, uh, not a good thing. Um, so a kind of bit of sort of moderation. So, you know, when I talk with people who are extremely perfectionistic, right, perfectionism is is often you would kind of imagine is a really good thing for an elite sports person because it's going to drive them to continue being better and better and better. Ultimately, it can become problematic right at the very extreme end of that, because if you are because it is unreasonable and unrealistic to expect yourself to be perfect all of the time or in fact very often right perfect is 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 unachievable generally so if you are someone who is so driven by perfectionism that you can't essentially get out of your own head about it and it then becomes frustrating and demotivating and demoralizing then it can become problematic so so you can have people who who do who do that um there are other sort of you know so i am i have done training courses on using sort of psychological kind of uh theories and techniques so i've done ones on cbt which is cognitive behavioral therapy and i've done one on act which is acceptance and commitment therapy um and i use those um a little more for those who who know the the, the difference i'm a little more inclined towards act uh generally but i use elements of those in my practice as well so very often you know i will you know the 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 things that maybe impact people in more extreme ways that can lead to depression or sort of some form of sort of yeah just sort of an an unhelpful psychological kind of uh state um some of those sort of same things will will crop up that are impacting their sporting performance of course right because the the two are going to be intrinsically linked the the person and the, the sports person um and so there may be having to sort of adjust 
or try and work with them on some of that right and and very often you will find that well so it, it, I probably should have said this right at the beginning of the answer, sorry, um, is that it also depends a bit how often, how much time I have with the client. So very often if I'm working with an organization, they may say you've got four sessions or six sessions, in which case it's relatively short. I will focus very much just on their performance and anything that sort of starts bubbling up that's clearly more of an underlying issue may, it, it would broadly be sort of uh, unethical and, and unhelpful to sort of open a can of worms that I don't have time to to then properly clean up um, as it were so yeah in those instances I will try and keep it very focused if it's a client who I have sort of an, an unlimited number of sessions with who I'm who I'm seeing then potentially we will get into some of those sort of deeper questions about like well why you know, if they constantly feel like they're a failure or they're, they're not living up to expectations or they're a bit too perfectionistic or whatever it happens to be, then we might try and dig a little deeper into like what where that comes from. What you know, And are there other areas of their life where that's also presenting? If there are, why is that? If they're not, that's also really interesting. Well, how come it's only showing up in your sport, but not in your work or not in your personal relationships or whatever? Mm. It is really interesting. Um, I'm I'm just thinking, are there examples where someone with with mental health a mental health condition um, can can improve their condition through sports psychology? I mean, obviously, it's not a replacement for for be it therapy or medication or whatever. But do do you think that sports psychology can can have a role in in improving people's mental health? Yeah, and uh, for sure. And and I think, um, I mean, there, there is a lot of evidence to suggest that exercise is an incredibly, or is, is an effective tool for reducing sort of mild and moderate depression, mild and moderate anxiety, and a host of other things, getting outside, getting some sunshine, you know, green therapy and things like that, of just sort of being in an outdoors space, seeing some greenery is, is really helpful as well. Um, and obviously that can sometimes go together um so yeah i think there's there's a lot on that i mean technically my my master's my training is is as both a sport and exercise psychologist so the exercise side of things is slightly is isn't a big part of what i do but there are people who have gone through the same training process as me who work with individuals who are trying to whether it's sort of they've been diagnosed with diabetes diabetes or they're pre-diabetic or something and they need a fitness regime but they're struggling for motivation mm -hmm. those kinds of things um but also who may be working more along those those lines that i just sort of spoke about there of sort of yeah trying to get someone who's not the not their best self right uh, who's, mm, who's mm. struggling a little bit with with something and finding yeah exercise plans exercise regimes that will will fit with them and help them sort of feel feel better about themselves that way mm, so mm. so yeah it, it, it can certainly be helpful i think it's my understanding of the evidence is it's it's more at the sort of moderate and mild end of the spectrum i think by the time you've got into sort of really severe depression really severe anxiety and some of the sort of more um more severe sort of mental diagnosable mental illness sort of that that that's trickier um and sport can be can be a problem or oh, sorry sport is less helpful there it hasn't been proven right, to be right. effective. hence hence you would be making those referrals um yeah and just another follow-up on that um people have got much better about talking about their mental health uh, have you found, and this might be one from sort of your wife's um, viewpoint because she's been doing it longer than you, have you found that people are more open and willing as as you've been going on with your practice? That's a really interesting question. I I think it's it probably is changing, I, but I I do think there's still a surprising amount of reluctance. I, I think some people still don't necessarily part of it is that that people maybe don't really know what a sports psychologist is or does um i think that can be a, a huge part of it so um i think one aspect of sports psychology that often gets overlooked and and i'm probably also guilty of not sort of advertising this uh, you know when i talk to organizations is sports psychology tends to be thought of as a way of sort of oh i have a problem right i am unmotivated or i can't perform under pressure get me back to a baseline right mm. so there's there's 
there's that sort of side of things but there is also an additive bit of sports psychology which is i'm currently at this baseline can sports psychology make me even better and that that's an area where i think you know it can be really really cool really interesting it's a slightly different way of approaching things and you obviously it's a slightly different client base that you, you'd be working with there people who are trying to make those you know make the fine margins count right make the little tiny incremental differences um but that's definitely something that that can be can be looked at within yeah within sports psychology that that yeah i think is is often a sort of overlooked element of of the work um and i think that therefore kind of means that the people but because people don't necessarily know that they don't necessarily come to sports psychologists about that it tends to be more sort of problem driven of like oh, i I used to be able to do X, but now I feel like Y or, you know, help <laughs> fix me. Um, so that I think is is still a, quite a sort of a widespread phenomenon. I, and, and I think it also depends a little bit. I think, you know, without totally resorting to stereotypes, I think there are still differences between the, the willingness of, of sort of men versus women, of you know younger people versus older people not exclusively you know i i have i work with a you know a, a male in his sort of i think late 40s early 50s who came to me voluntarily and is incredibly open and is perfectly willing to share and who sought me out of his own accord so you know it is not a hard and fast rule it's not just sort of 14 year old girls who are like oh i'll talk to the sports psychologist and some of the 14 year old girls are very reluctant to do so you know so it, it's totally you know that there is a mixed bag but i yeah so i i think it probably is changing but it's it's quite slow mm. really fascinating i've got one more question for you before you go alex and this is from yagnesh Vadgama, who says what are your recommendations for athletes when they hit that proverbial wall more so on the mental health blocks that athletes sometimes find themselves in hitting the wall is this something that you um you're asked about regularly yeah and i I guess it, I'd be, it sort of depends a little bit if we're talking, you know, runners, long distance runners sort of talk about hitting a wall in terms of, you know, like in a marathon or whatever. So I don't know if this is, if if the question is about a sort of specific moment, like a much more kind of shorter time frame of like, what do you do in that moment? What can you do to push through the pain or, or whatever it takes then? Or whether it's a, a slightly longer term thing. So I'll, if you don't mind, I'll try and have a crack at both. So um, and they, they'll probably kind of tie together a bit. Um, but the I mean, I think with the well, yeah. So I, I guess at the core of both of them, whether you're, you're thinking short term or long term is is it's always helpful to have a really clear idea of what your goals are. Right. And I think I suspect we've probably spoken about kind of clear goal setting before um, and having I, I think we've spoken about the difference between an outcome goal, which is your kind of long term like dream that's the sort of like kissing the cup or biting the medal moment or standing on the podium whatever it happens to be um and then you sort of you break that down and so you have your your process goals on a day-to-day basis so if you're talking more about the sort of the longer term hitting a wall of just sort of feeling a bit demotivated feeling a bit burnt out tying what you're doing every day to that goal can be really powerful just in and of itself of, of reminding yourself essentially like oh the alarm clock's going off really early tomorrow because i've got to go training oh that sounds grim i don't want to do it if you can take a small segment of but think how happy i'll feel when i'm stood on that podium or whatever you you, you can kind of use that to to rejuvenate yourself to energize yourself um so that can be really helpful um motivation is also motivation and success are very closely interlinked so if you start feeling that motivation and then you you then really celebrate the successes that come with that that can be really helpful as well so like okay i don't want the alarm clock to go off tomorrow at 5 30 a.m but it's gonna and then after that session you go god i was really dreading that session but i did it and actually when i turned up i worked on this process goal whether it's you know like this element of my technique or this element of my stamina i'm gonna you know i don't need to like throw a party or anything but i am going to reflect on that um and very often i work with clients i'll say like whatever it is after a training session or whatever you just grab a post-it write down a couple of things that you're proud of if you want you can just throw that post-it away but just taking that moment to write them down gives your brain that little hit of satisfaction it's like cool yeah that that was worth it The, the alarm clock went off 
I went, I trained hard and I'm proud of this, that and the other. Or keep those post-its, put them in a little jam jar so that you've got like a little stockpile of, of evidence as you go forward. That's quite nice because then when you're setting the alarm the next time around, you've got this little kind of reminder of like, oh, no, no, this this is worth it. Because every time that alarm clock goes off, I get to put another post-it in the, in the jar or whatever. And that can sound really like basic and almost childish, but it can be really, really powerful. And there's a number of different ways of kind of doing that. Um, so that, I guess, is the sort of the more the kind of that that longer term thing. Uh, another option can be just like evaluating your your alternatives, right? So again, earlier I was sort of talking about the sort of emotional coping mechanisms, like a, a voice that pops up and says like, oh, Spurs are going to lose this, like, you know, it, or you'll be disappointed if Spurs lose. So just say that's what you expect all the way along. Well, that same voice can kind of kick in either in a longer term basis of like, maybe we should pack this in, maybe you're never going to achieve that goal or in a race. Oh God, this really hurts. Maybe I'm not going to make it to the finish line. If you can sort of take that voice and you can essentially sort of either characterize it and, and sort of maybe even name it as like, oh, yeah, that's the, the doubtful voice or you name its story, the, the the narrative that it is telling you around sort of like, oh, well, you're going to quit. Right. So that's the quit narrative or the, the you're never going to make it narrative, the failure narrative or whatever. And then you go like, yeah, I've heard this before. You go on and on about this. I, I've heard the, that narrative, but right now I'm halfway through a marathon. You're not a helpful voice to be having right now. So I'm gonna just sort of try and essentially sort of turn the volume down on you. Um, that can be really helpful. Um, and also then um, around that sort of same sense of like having that that kind of that protection, right? That protection wants to kick in and say like, oh God, this is going really badly. You're in loads of pain. You should, you know. Well, what are your alternatives? You have, let's say you're two thirds of the way through a marathon. I mean, no one's making you do it. You could just stop, right? You could just walk over to the side, just walk off the walk off the course. Is that actually better? Well, maybe, right? But probably not, right? Because you've presumably spent months training for it. You've maybe spent, you know, if it's something like the London Marathon, you, you may have had to apply two or three years in a row. You've maybe raised loads of money for charity. You've got all these different things that are sort of saying, like, actually, it's probably worth just pushing through this pain and getting to the end of it. Because then at least because you're in pain either way right now. Right. So you might as well finish it and get that buzz of satisfaction and also pay the money to charity and blah, 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 blah rather than the alternative and so sometimes just having that in mind can be really helpful as well for just like that's what i'm going to do i'm going to push through this um and then also just any sense of evidence that you have so if you're doing if you've done marathons before and you know that they always hurt at a certain point when you come up on that point and it starts to hurt again you go yeah, but I know I can push through this pain because I've got photos of me at the finish line in 2018, 2019, 2020 and 21. You know, here I am this year. I will finish because I know that I can. So having that as well can just be really helpful. Well, I never. Bardi's got his uh, free marathon advice here. I was not <laughs> expecting that. Amazing. You can, Alex... you can cut that out then. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. I wouldn't do that to him. As ever, really fascinating. Um, what tends to happen is people then send in a bunch of questions. Um, please do that because we'll definitely speak to Alex again in the future. So if you if anything cropped up whilst you listen to this that you'd like a follow up on, drop us an email uh, and, and I'll save the question and I'll put it to Alex when we next speak because this stuff is gold. It's so interesting. <laughs> it's, you know, and, and this is, you know, in, in that space where the, the pundits are speaking to footballers about the same old things after football matches and then analysing the same old things, they could be having this kind of stuff in there. It, it would be great to have a sports psychologist and a, and, and a football gantry speaking about the impact that that has on performance. Uh, but no, so, so we're, forced <laughs> to, we're, we're, we're forced to dig deeper in our little, in our little corner of the internet. Alex, it's absolutely brilliant to speak to you. Where can people find you? And, um, you know, if there's anyone listening who who might want to um, hire you, um, how would they do that? So best bet if it's a sort of inquiry potentially about some work is to find me through uh, the consultancy that, that I work for, which is Optimize Potential. Um, and the website for that is optimizepotentialsport.com. Um, or you can find me, I'm on 
Instagram and Twitter as Alex Stoyle, which is S-T-O-Y-E-L. Um, often people put it L-E, but it's E-L. Um, and yeah, if you just sort of search for me on, on any of those, the social media platforms, I will, I will pop up there. Uh, also LinkedIn, I guess. Awesome. And I'm sure we'll speak again soon. Lovely. Thanks. Thanks very much for having me. Always a pleasure. And just a reminder that we are once again partnered with Pleatees for March, casual wear for fully coys people. P-L-E-A-T-E-E-S dot com is their website. Pleatees dot com and use the code extra 20 to get 20% off. You've been listening to The Extra Inch. Thanks to Nathan A. Clark for production. Thanks to Bardi for being Italian. Thanks to Adam Gardner for the artwork. Thanks to David Lindmer for our intro music. You can find him on Twitter at Davy Shambles and his soundcloud E Lindmer. Do check him out, he's great. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Extra Inch. Email us via podcast at theextrainch.co.uk and subscribe via your usual podcast platforms. And if you do enjoy the podcast, consider leaving us a rating and review. That would really help. 